1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Megan Cochran, and today I welcome Paul Katzifanis to discuss his book, Philosophy of Devotion, The Longing for Invulnerable Ideals, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Paul Katsafanis is a professor of philosophy at Boston University, where he studies moral philosophy, uh, sorry, moral psychology, ethics, and 19th century philosophy. In addition to the philosophy of devotion that we're talking about today, Professor Katapanas is also author of The Nietzschean Self and the and Agency and the Foundations of Ethics. He is also the editor of Fanaticism and the History of Philosophy, which came out just this past year. His recent work focuses on commitment, devotion, fanaticism, and extremism. Professor Katsifadas, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. I found your book fascinating.
1: Thanks, George.
0: Yeah, you dive deep into this very complicated and honestly sometimes troubling subject of why people persist in commitments that can threaten their happiness, security, and comfort. Uh, I think many of us have wondered about this. We find ourselves shaking our heads, slightly baffled, uh, and wonder about the things that people believe and what they do because of those beliefs. Uh, There are both innocuous and terrifying examples, everything from people who have strict dietary restrictions or exercise regimes to people who believe they need to take extreme measures, even killing or other kinds of violence to fulfill their commitments. In your book, you tease apart the specific characteristics of this kind of devotion, which you refer to as sacred and which you define as inviolable, incontestable, and dialectically invulnerable. And I want to get to these a bit later in the discussion. But I was also particularly struck by the thoughtfulness with which you explain that this kind of devotion does not always derive from the beliefs themselves. Uh, You say that for many It's the desire to be devoted um, that leads to them finding a target or a belief in which to place that devotion. You also point out that there are many good reasons to have this kind of devotion in our lives. It can provide meaning and value. It can shape our identities. It can help people avoid feeling adrift. It can be easier and more fulfilling to live when we're not constantly reassessing and questioning priorities. Uh, but in addition, like we said, these can also be very dangerous, uh, even pathological and destructive, both to the individual, uh, the people around them and even to society. Um, what I also was completely fascinated about in your book is that you provide an alternative, which I found so striking. And I'm, I'm as we get through, as we go later in the book, I'm going to ask you to talk about that some more. Um you say it's not easy, but there is another way to go about this. And I, I think our audience would be interested in that. Now, before we get into all of that, which I hope we will, I want to take a step back. And will you tell our listeners, please, about your background and why you wrote this book?
1: So I've been interested in philosophy for a number of years. And the questions that have gripped me most deeply are existential questions about the the meaning and the significance of life, the things that people devote themselves to within life that seem to them to give their lives meaning and significance. So if we think about some of our deepest commitments, our most important relationships to others through friendship and romantic relationships, um, the things that we strive to attain in life, those are the sorts of topics that I find most interesting in philosophy. I think there are a number of philosophers who have attempted to understand what motivates people to, um, go down one path rather than the other, what rips people, what keeps them committed or devoted to these difficult long-term projects, what makes them rule out one form of life and devote themselves to some other form of life instead. So I've been interested in those sorts of questions for quite a while, um, for, for some time earlier in my career, I was interested in exploring the way in which particular philosophers, especially the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, understood those sorts of questions. So I think he has some really fascinating analyses of what uh, what philosophers sometimes called moral psychology or philosophical psychology, which is sort of a study of the way that people make decisions The what's going on when people embrace certain values and use those values to shape their lives, uh, how our conscious thought relates to our unconscious thought, how all of that plays a role in, in, uh, making up our lives. So I, I, thought Nietzsche and some of the people he interacts with had really interesting non-standard accounts of those phenomena. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, my first book was sort of half on Nietzsche, and a half on some other um, thoughts about agency and ethics. My second book was all about Nietzsche, just sort of analyzing um, topics like what Nietzsche's view that conscious, unconscious distinction is, um, how he's thinking about human motivation and decision-making and values. But I guess in the course of thinking through all these issues, one thing that I got really interested in was actually a problem that this philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche diagnoses that he thinks arises in modernity. And basically the problem that he sees is he thinks that traditional sources of meaning are collapsing. So this is controversial, but Nietzsche thought that uh, religions were beginning to die out or to lose their grip on people, that other you know, philosophical theories of social causes and other potential sources of meaning and direction for people's lives were breaking down. They were coming to seem unjustified or untenable for various reasons. And Nietzsche sort of wondered, you know, what happens then do, do we get plunged into what he would call nihilism, where we're sort of adrift, we don't see any reason for thinking that one way of life or one set of values is preferable to any other, they all just look like arbitrary, unjustifiable commitments. Um, do we just get plunged into that sort of state? Do, do strong, long-term commitments begin to die out, to sort of dissipate, because you know, they longer have the structures within which they might make sense? So I became really interested in that. And I guess in thinking about those questions, I was led to reflect on uh, the topics I address in this latest book, which, as you were describing, is about um, what I call devotion, which is a form of commitment um, that I guess we'll talk about more as we go on, but it's about a form of deep commitment to things like relationships or ideals or causes or ways of life. And I'm sort of interested in what sustains those commitments, especially in cases where they seem linked to our identities in certain ways and resistant to certain kinds of rational reflection. So it's really struggling with those sort of issues um, that led me to uh, to write this book.
0: In the subtitle of the book, you refer to devotion and the longing for uh, invulnerable ideas. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? What What do you mean by that longing?
1: Sure. So one thing that I think is really striking about human beings is that I think if you look at a lot of what we do, a lot of how human life proceeds, what we might notice is that people crave things to which they can devote themselves Um, I think we often find that people seem adrift or lack a sense of meaning or significance if they don't see anything worth devoting themselves to, if they don't see ideals that they can commit themselves to or relationships they can commit themselves to. So one thing that I try to argue in the early parts of the book is that people actually have this basic motivation to look for opportunities to devote themselves to things to things. So, you know, it's not just that we look around the world and see uh, valuable stuff and decide to pursue this valuable thing uh, rather than that one. It's also that we actively look for opportunities to manifest this strong form of commitment or devotion. And that's, I guess, what I was thinking of as this longing, this longing for ideals that we can commit ourselves to. And I use that word invulnerable, um, because I think it's important to have certain kinds of ideals that aren't just given up readily, that don't just dissipate or dissolve as soon as you start to think about alternatives or to reflect on them or to weigh the pros and cons. I think that some important features of human life that link up with our sense of meaning and significance require that we have ideals that are invulnerable in a certain sense that don't budge or get dislodged when we start to doubt them or reflect on them or consider alternatives to them. So I think we actually have what I was describing as a longing or a sort of a felt need for these sorts of ideals in our lives.
0: You talk about this devotion as an ethical stance based on a sacred value. Um, I'm in seminary, so I, of course, was very interested in how how do you think about that? So you, I'd love for you to explain this for our listeners. Um, You've particularly used the terms inviolable, incontestable, and dialectically invulnerable. It's a big mouthful, but maybe you could just take us through kind of the underpinnings of, of what you mean by this ethical stance based on the sacred value.
1: Sure, I'd love to. So I think one interesting phenomenon that sociologists and psychologists and philosophers have been interested in is a distinction between values that are treated as sacred and then just ordinary values, ones that aren't treated as sacred. So that distinction between the sacred and the, the non-sacred, um, a lot of it originally comes up in people like, uh, Durkheim, uh, an early sociologist. Um, but in the past couple of decades, there have been a number of people within empirical social psychology who have tried to study what they see as a difference between ordinary values and sacred values. Um, so intuitively, the idea is supposed to be something like this. Um, some of our values are pretty trivial. Like, you know, I value coffee, I value nice weather, stuff like that. Um, but then there are others that are like much more significant than that. Right? So think about people's deepest political or religious commitments. Now, if you think about the way in which those values operate, um, psychologists have tried to show empirically and some philosophers have tried to show in, uh, you know, this argumentative way that, um, those values don't behave in the same way. So there are some values for which people are willing to make enormous sacrifices. Um, There are some values that seem to be linked to a sense of meaning or significance in a way that others are. not Like, I do value coffee, but it's not a source of profound meaning in my life. Um, And also I'll readily trade that value against other values. Like if if something more important comes along, I'll give up the coffee and do something else. But there are other values where people just won't, Give them up, no matter how high the costs are. So, um, psychologists have studied this. Some of the studies that they'll do involve religious beliefs, but also political commitments. So, think about the people who are willing to make enormous sacrifices that seem to not pay attention to cost-benefit analysis, so as to preserve whatever their political commitments are. Uh, you know, they'll sacrifice tremendous amounts, both personally and in terms of the costs they'll boast on other people to uh to stick with those values and they'll view um any violation of those values as problematic so there are some values that behave that way and others that seem more easily exchanged and traded against one another like the value we place on coffee and so forth so that's the intuitive distinction now if you try to make that more precise um what some people try to do is think about what the features would be that distinguish the sacred and the non-sacred values and there's a lot of controversy there, but, um, what I try to argue is that there are three core features that distinguish the sacred values from the non-sacred ones, and those are the features that you listed. Um, those are the inviolability, uh, incontestability and dialectical and vulnerability. So let me say what that means. Um, when I say that a value is inviolable, what that means is that sacred values aren't traded against other values. In the way that ordinary values are so if i'm thinking about whether to have coffee or whether to you know let's say it's late at night and i'm thinking about whether to get a good night's sleep or have the coffee that i want i could just do a, a cost benefit analysis i can say okay you know coffee tastes good it would be nice but sleep is more important Let me not do the coffee do the, the sleep instead and there's nothing wrong with that i don't feel like i'm violating the valuation that i place on coffee or anything like that um some values aren't like that there are some values where any attempt to trade them against one another will seem problematic. So think about a person who has a religious commitment that they think should just override all other values. Yet nothing else um, can be exchanged with that value. There's no circumstance in which they'll trade the religious value against mm-hmm. some other value. That's what I call inviolability. The sacred value. Um anytime that you act against it, you will be violating it rather than just, you know, trading it against something else that you value. Um, Incontestability, there are some values, and there's a lot of interesting empirical research on this point. Um, There are some values where people are reluctant even to reflect on like hypothetical violations of those values, where something seems wrong if you think about those values in certain ways. Uh, One of the examples I use in my book: uh, a lot of us think that human life is a sacred value. So imagine I have. Uh, like a rich uncle where if that person dies, I'm going to collect an inheritance. Um, and imagine that I deliberate about like killing that person so as to collect the inheritance, but then I decide, oh no, I shouldn't do that. Um, I mean, obviously that's the right conclusion, but if I seriously reflect on things in that way, even though I never act on it, it seems like something's already wrong, right? Like merely entertaining the possibility of killing someone in order to get some money even if you don't do it, it seems wrong that you're seriously contemplating that. So that's the feature that I call incontestability, where even these um, examinations of the value in thought, these like hypothetical violations of the value seem problematic to the person. Um, and then dialectical invulnerability, that's the idea. So a lot of our values and commitments respond to thoughts about how justified we think they are. Right? So if I think, um, you know, imagine that I value coffee as I do, but then imagine some studies come out that show that coffee is like really terrible for you. Uh, you know, it affects your health in various ways. I expect that what would happen is that I just give up that value. Right. I think that, okay, I really like the coffee, but health is more important. Let me, uh, me abandon that. Um, other values don't seem to respond to justification quite that way where even if we think that there are reasons against holding the value, even if there are very powerful ones, we just won't let that affect our degree of commitment to the value. So the value seems sort of um, insulated or rendered invulnerable to rational reflection. I- another good example of that might be something like um, the love that a parent might have for a child, where it's not like you reason yourself into that love, right? Like it's not you. It's not that you say, oh, you know, my child is so much better than this other child. Therefore, I ought to to love her and not him. Um, it's rather that there seems to be something more visceral and immediate and non-rational about it, right? You stick with that commitment. Even if I was convinced that some other kid was like smarter than my kid or more appealing than my kid or something like that, that wouldn't affect. The love, or and the commitment, and the valuation that I have for her, right? So it looks like that value doesn't respond to rational reflection in the same way that other more standard ones do. So putting all that together, um, sacred values are the values that have those features where you don't violate them to achieve other values. You don't even think about uh, doing that in certain ways, and when you do uh, reflect on their justification, that doesn't have any effect on them. They don't budge.
0: Yeah. So that your, your ethical stance then is based on these building blocks of the, this is how you need, this is how your behavior will be guided because of the sacredness of this belief. I think that's really helpful because there are so many different ones. Even as you were talking, I was thinking about um, two very different examples. One was someone who is, it's that, the Monday after Super Bowl Sunday that we're recording this, and for many people, that football game is a sacred event, <laughs> and that was very clear yesterday, um, particularly in my home. Um, but um, but I also think that there's a lot of nuance in how we do this. But you know, it would be unthinkable to not not do this. And, and I use that example because it's in some ways it's not serious. You know, nobody would be hurt or anything. But it still illustrates uh, the, the, the issues. Um, the other example that was going through my head is, uh, people's commitment to different ideals. Like if you remember smoking used to be this way, people thought it was a freedom. Um, and the same thing happens with gun rights. And so those were kind of loading in my head. I don't know if you want to speak about that. Oh,
1: one. yeah. I, I mean, I think those are great examples. So with the, the sports example, I mean, think about the way, uh, you know, a lot of people have a favorite team, Right? And even if the team is doing terribly, maybe for a long time, for decades or whatever, uh, so that in some sense, it would be rational to think that some other team is better. Sometimes that sort of thing just has no bearing on the commitment, right? You're, you're committed to it, um, not because you think the, the, the team is objectively best or something like that. Those sorts of considerations are just moot. They just don't affect you. Um, so I think that would be an example of this dialectical vulnerability. You, know, you can imagine somebody trying to argue you out of that commitment by saying, "No, you know these players are terrible. The, you know, this other team is better." But that just doesn't have the, you know, it doesn't. That's not what it's about. It doesn't affect you in that way. And then the, the smoking example and the guns right example, the gun rights example. I think those are both good ones too. I mean, if you um, look at some of the arguments in favor of gun rights, the Second Amendment arguments. Um, some people even explicitly describe that as sacred, a sacred right, where, you know, they're aware that gun ownership, um, I mean, there are studies clearly indicating that as like the number of guns in a population increases. So too does the number of uh, gun related uh, injuries and deaths and so forth. So it's not like they have to um, not be aware of that, but they can see that as irrelevant um, given their sacralization of, of that particular value. So I think those are good examples whereas and with a smoking example, you can imagine, I mean imagine somebody who smokes back when we don't yet know that it has these disastrous health effects. Um, you can imagine that once that data comes out, some people might just give it up. Yeah, it would take struggle because of the addictive properties and so forth, but they might immediately decide that they should give it up and that would be an indication that it's not sacred to them. Um, whereas somebody who just persists in it, despite that, um, that could be an indication that it is functioning in this this way, where it's exempted from critical reflection.
0: And that might explain why it took decades after that information yeah. came forward for yeah. people to get there at, in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah,
1: um, and that might be, um, and, and that could be like linked yeah. up with their identities and things like that, where it's you know their self-conception is bound up with this um, sense of themselves as a smoker, and that's part of the explanation. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting case.
0: Fascinating. Um, so there are many good reasons for sacred values, and you talk a little bit about this as well. There's positive outcomes by people who are devoted to these commitments. Uh, will you take us through some of those positive aspects? You mentioned this a little bit before, but maybe just a little more on it.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I think mean, so one example would be personal relationships. So, um, you know, imagine two different people. So, you know, two people in committed romantic relationships and imagine that one person does not treat that commitment in the way that I was just describing in this sacralized way. So what that would mean is that, you know, they're with their partner for a particular set of reasons. Maybe they think their partner is like funny or attractive or intelligent or whatever. Um, but imagine somebody else comes along who's, who scores better on those attributes. She's uh funnier, more intelligent, more attractive. Um, you can imagine somebody who is merely with the person um, because that person supports, you know fairly well in these attributes um, and wants that commitment to be responsive to their reflection. You can imagine that person like loosening the commitment or at least being tempted to do so, whereas you can imagine another person, a deeper form of commitment, where um, those factors just don't matter at all, where the person doesn't sort of compare their partner to other possible partners where the fact that somebody is like funnier or more physically attractive or something like that, that just doesn't register with them as a reason in favor of loosening or abandoning the commitment. So that would be one example. Um, and you could think that um, you know the the latter form of commitment, it's certainly going to be more stable. Uh, you might think it's more meaningful that it can have a deeper sense of significance or importance to to both of the parties involved in it Uh, another example might be something like social or political causes so you know a lot of the things that people devote themselves to like imagine somebody who is an animal rights activist or somebody who's concerned about climate change or somebody who uh, wants to fight inequality or something like that these are big problematic issues that Uh, will take massive amounts of time to uh, make a difference toward, right? So um, you can imagine somebody who decides to devote their life to, uh, let's say, mitigating the effects of climate change or something like that. Um, You can imagine that that person uh, will also see that there are other valuable ways to spend their life, their life. So, you know, climate change is one problem, but there are also a bunch of other pressing problems. There are a bunch of good things that you can devote your life to. Um, you can imagine somebody whose commitment to the particular life they've chosen just responds to those facts about what else is worth doing such that their commitment keeps being undermined. They keep being tempted to do something else instead. Um, and they keep sort of wavering. Whereas the person who chooses this is sacralized the person who's committed to it in a way that exempts it from these sorts of comparisons and these uh, reflections on what else there's reason to do and what the pros and cons are. Um, they just devote themselves to that cause and therefore have a stable ground for their life and may make more progress in achieving the cause that they've devoted themselves to. So, I mean, I think one way of thinking about this is that if you imagine a bunch of people whose commitments are very fickle and like easily overridden by competing considerations, they're probably not going to achieve much. They're probably not going to look like people with stable sources of significance in their lives. They might not even look like people with particularly meaningful lives. I think that when we try to instead focus on the people whose lives we see as profoundly significant and important and meaningful and all that, um, what we often see is this deep form of commitment that um, operates in the way that we've been discussing. So that might be another example.
0: So. As we sort of get deeper into the content we start to get from these very positive associations with commitment and devotion, and I want to start getting into what I think are some of the more difficult ones. Um, uh, and broadly speaking, you discuss this under the, under the label of fanaticism. Um, there's a few others too, but I, I'd like for you to explain that because I think for many of us, when we hear the word fanatic, we think like, it, like sports, like the example we used before, a sports fanatic. But I think there's a much darker and, and more um, sort of frightening aspect to it. And I want to make sure that we make that uh, evident for our listeners because I, I think it's a big part of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. so the phenomenon that I've been describing, where you commit yourself to something in this wholehearted way, uh, where you don't trade it against other things, where it's a stable source of significance and all that, um, we've been talking about positive versions of that. But as you're saying, there are also darker versions of that. So imagine somebody who's committed to a morally problematic role. and one way in which that can occur, this isn't the only way, but one way is this dark version of fanaticism that I'll, I'll talk about. So there's definitely a looser sense of fanaticism where we might talk about like the, the sports fanatic or the, I don't know, the stamp collecting fanatic or things like this, where probably what that means is just that the person um, is kind of obsessed with that activity where, you know, it's like a central part of their life and they spend a lot of time and effort on it. So, I mean, I think it's perfectly fine to use the word fanatic in that way, but I think there's like a, a deeper and darker sense of fanaticism. Um, you know, th- that term fanaticism, it really comes to prominence um, in, the, like in the 16th century, basically, when it's used to describe uh, people who are engaged in violent political behavior that's often religiously motivated. And um, what it often picks out, I mean, if you think of, Examples of fanatics today. What might spring to mind is um, people engaged in these sorts of violent activities. So you might think of the the jihadist or the uh, the, the violent white nationalist or you know people of this sort. And one thing that we might want to wonder about these people is what's what's distinctive of them. Well, one thing that's distinctive, we certainly see a high degree of commitment and a willingness to undertake sacrifices. So a lot of people we describe as fanatics will sacrifice their own lives or at least risk their own lives. Um, they'll often be willing to impose terrible costs on others, like harming people, killing people, coercing people and so forth. So, um, what's going on there is the question. Is it just a case of this type of devotion or commitment that I've been describing, but directed at bad ends, or is there something else and some deeper problem? And one thing that I try to argue in the book is that, um, there's a form of devotion to ideals or causes that can promote a kind of violent intolerance. And I try to argue that what that form of devotion is linked to is uh, what I describe in terms of a fragile sense of selfhood and a fragile sense of the goal or the value that you're directed toward. What I mean by that is that some people um, sort of illegitimately or unwarrantedly, or at least in an exaggerated way, perceived threats everywhere in the world. So the perceived threats, even to the extent that when they see that somebody doesn't accept their preferred value or ideal, they'll perceive the mere disagreement as a threat to that value. Um, So they'll think that the mere fact that their value is not universally acknowledged threatens that value, and I think that's what we often see in fanaticism. I think it's also often linked to a what I call a fragile sense of selfhood, where your identity is sort of bound up with your orientation toward that value or that goal. Um, and it's only in relation to that goal that you can understand yourself in a stable way. So that when that ideal or goal is threatened, you experience that not just as a problem out there in the world. What is a threat to your very self. And that I think is what motivates of this violent and defensive behavior. So the fanatic, as I try to define the fanatic, and in this part of the book, I draw both on some prior philosophical accounts and some empirical work on radicalization and terrorism and things like this. um, The fanatic, I try to argue, is the person who has this fragile sense of self and this sense that the value in terms of which they define themselves is threatened rendering um, the value fragile where some of those threats just come from mere disagreement lack of acceptance of the value so the fed is unwilling to tolerate disagreement dissent
0: so that disagreement and dissent becomes like an attack it becomes exactly. an attack to defend themselves from can you also well, explain there's a word that you use quite a bit during this section of the book called and i you know pardon my semi-french pronunciation but ressentiment yeah. Um, please pronounce that correctly and and tell me what you mean by it.
1: Oh, i so I'm not a perfect French speaker either, but no horizontal So um so this is a word, it just means resentment in French, but um it's this word that was introduced into philosophy by by Friedrich Nietzsche, the the philosopher I mentioned earlier. So uh Nietzsche has this book called The Genealogy of Morality, where he's trying to get what he sees as um a historical or genealogical account of how we came to have the moral values that we have today. And in the course of that book, he introduces this concept that he calls ressentiment, and um, it's similar to ordinary resentment. So uh, Nietzsche's writing in German, but he, instead of using the German word for resentment, he uses this French word, ressentiment, and uh, presumably part of the reason for that is that he wants to. Uh, show us that he's giving this term like a special sense. It's not ordinary resentment. It's something something more than that. So there have been a lot of attempts to figure out what resentment is. Um, so there's a great book by... Um, of philosopher and sociologist uh, Max Shaler that's just called Resultimo, and it's sort of an analysis of what that is, drawing on Nietzsche, but also departing from him in certain ways. And some contemporary sociologists work with this concept of Resultimo as well. Um, but let me say what it is. So ordinary resentment, if we just focus on what ordinary resentment is, it's something like um, anger or indignation or being upset out of a sense that somebody has wronged you right? Like somebody shoves you or insults you or steps on your foot or something like that. And you're like a little angry or miffed, or whatever. And you're, you feel that way because you think that they've done something mm-hmm. wrong to you. That's how people ordinarily use the word resentment. Resentment is supposed to be different than that. It's a more complex and more long lasting state. So it shares this general sense that you have been wronged. Somebody is injured you or done wrong to you in a certain way. But it combines it with a kind of envious, malicious hatred of the person who's doing that to you. Um, And Nietzsche sees it, and some other philosophers see it, as this state that tends to grow and perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, our emotions, like some of our emotions are very short-lived. So surprise, it just lasts for a second. Uh, Other emotions are very long-lasting. So grief, for example, that you can't have grief just for a moment that's going to last for quite a long time. Resentiment is supposed to be more on that side where ordinary resentment could just be momentary, right? Like uh, somebody insults me, I get angry, they apologize, it's all over. Uh, Resentiment is supposed to be this brooding state that persists and grows. So it consists in this feeling that you've been wronged by somebody and it consists in this envious or hateful reaction to that where you want to get back at the person for wronging you. Moreover, um, it's supposed to be something that sort of grows and sustains itself over time. So what might start off as just a sense that somebody has wronged me in a particular way starts to magnify, starts to spread in the person's psychology so that now it's not just that this person or this group has wronged me in some very particular way, It's rather that many or perhaps all of the failings um, that I experience in life are due to this person or group. So one way in which I think this is a useful phenomenon uh, or useful concept to work with is that I think you can see in some of the narratives or like self-understandings that fanatical groups promote and hate groups, and so forth, I think you can see um, something like a narrative of resentment where you do things this way. You first identify a group of people who is being who is being wronged by something. Um, so we could work with some of the white nationalist narratives, for example. So uh, white males are being wronged, um, and then there'll be like a, a list of all things that are going wrong. Um, then there'll be a group that's presented as responsible for that, the target group. Um, And as time goes on, you'll see more and more sort of grievances or wrongs being added to this list. You'll see more and more things that are being attributed uh, to this group that's allegedly wronging the target group. Um, And you'll see the promotion of hateful or vengeful reactions toward that group. So I think that's what we see in a lot of these fanatical groups. Um, another example that I talked about a bit in the book is, um, incels. So I think, um, a lot of us who, um, are interested in internet hate groups and so forth, um, are fascinated by incels. These are the involuntary celibates, people who, men who, um, think that they're being wronged by women by being denied sex for women, um, and what is fascinating about some of these incel groups is that if you look at the narratives that they propound, um, what starts off originally as a fairly, I mean, it's problematic even at the beginning, but what starts off as a couple of concerns keeps growing so that more and more problems are being attributed to, uh, relations between men and women in contemporary society. Um, all of the plights and failings that, um, might, arise for men in particular social situations are being blamed on this sort of uh, structure and vengeful and hateful reactions are encouraged toward those parties. So those are the sorts of things that um, some philosophers find it helpful to describe in terms of result- um where you identify these grievances and take them to excuse all the uh, failings that you personally have because you, you blame the southern group.
0: So you have this concept of ressentiment, this very intense, growing, sort of all encompassing kind of resentment. Um, and then you also have a concept of fragility. So these um these attacks, if you will, are very, very threatening, they feel very threatening um, to the person. I guess at this point we maybe we can say like now we're talking about a fanatic who has who has both the fragility and this growing grievance. Um I don't even know what to call it, this cloud of grievance Um, and that kind of fragility. I mean, as you're talking, I just keep thinking about politics in the United States right now. Um, Yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that uh, manifests in that case.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I think a depressing feature of a lot of politics in the U.S. and elsewhere nowadays is the increasing prevalence of uh, what I was calling narratives of resentment. I mean, so one thing that's happening, I think, in a lot of political discourse is we have one group that's presenting another group as uh, responsible for all of the faults and all of the failings and you know, basically everything that's wrong with the world is foisted on some group. Um, there's something comforting about that, right? Because if you I mean, basically it excuses you as, for the failings in your own life, right? So if I'm Disaffected or unhappy with my life or things haven't worked out in the way that I want them to, it can be painful to see that as just like bad luck or something about me. It's comforting in a way just to be able to blame that on someone else, somebody who you sort of demonize and uh, vent your frustration on, vent your anger on. And I think you see that in a lot of contemporary political discourse, right? You have these increasingly exaggerating narratives that um, seem to leap from grievance to grievance, so, you know, in each new news cycle, there's some new problem that's supposedly pressing and is being blamed on um, the, the liberals or whatever. Right. So it's, it's, um, one thing that's distinctive, I think about, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, is that it doesn't, actually seek a kind of resolution. It just seeks perpetuation. So that's a difference with ordinary resentment I, I guess I didn't mention, but that's interesting. So with ordinary resentment, if somebody wrongs me, I might want them to just apologize or you know, make amends. Then it would be over. So there's a sense in which ordinary resentment can be directed at resolving itself. But um Resultima is not supposed to be like that. Resultima is supposed to grow in part because what it does is just um builds up and what it aims at is just more and more expression of itself. So um, what I think happens in some of these narratives, you know, if you tune into certain news stations or whatever, what you see is just manufactured grievances, basically, you see, you know, if one alleged problem is resolved, that doesn't satisfy people. We just need to something new. We have to find something else to be upset about, something to blame on other people. So I think that sort of. um, Stance, which has become endemic to a lot of political discourse, is profoundly damaging. I mean, it it generates this sort of us them dichotomy where each side views itself as like morally pure and the other as objectionable and evil and uh, perverted and so forth. Um, That kind of stance um, can easily lead into these sort of fanatical reactions that, uh, that we've been discussing
0: the brokenness in some ways becomes the purpose. The The meaning is in the brokenness rather than in finding a solution or getting beyond it.
1: Exactly. And that's because the um, the venting of frustration or rage and hatred and so forth, that's really what's being sought rather than the resolution of the problem. Yeah, right? yeah. I think we
0: see this, we saw this in the most recent uh, congressional, uh, congressional um, uh, things about, about immigration and the border. Um, so, really fascinating and um, and very topical pertinent. Um, I uh, I want to get to your alternative to fanaticism. I want to make sure we have time to go through that because I thought that was really interesting and uh, and and surprising in some ways. Um, and so you you talk in quite a bit of depth about the possibility of preserving some of these positive aspects while also ideally, not easily, but ideally uh, avoiding some of these negative ones. Um, you talk about uh, affirmation deepening. Can you can, you don't have to go directly into those two, but I'd love for you to give an overview of of what you're what you're getting at here and and what that might look like.
1: Sure. Um, so I guess the framework is something like this that uh, you know in the early parts of the book, I've been arguing that devotion serves all of these important roles, right? But then, as we've just been discussing, devotion can go badly wrong. It can easily lead into these oppositional antagonistic senses, like fanaticism. That would be one example. There would be others as well. Um, so what I ask at the end of the book is, you know, is there a way of preserving what's good about devotion while avoiding all that disastrous um, antagonism? Sort of? And I think there is. So what I try to argue is that there are these two strategies that we can employ that are difficult and don't guarantee that we'll avoid the problematic aspects, but at least are our paths forward are, are possibilities that we can pursue. Um, and I call one of them affirmation and I call the other the deepening move. Uh, affirmation, let me start with that one. So one of the things I was saying about sacred values and about devotion is that they're dialectically invulnerable. So what that meant was that whereas an ordinary value or an ordinary commitment might respond to these thoughts about justification, sacred values and devotion don't do that in the same way. They're insulated from rational reflection to such an extent that they don't even respond to it. Um, Now, one worry you might have is sort of how you sustain that. I mean, wouldn't we want our commitments and our values to be open to potential revision in light of you know, new information, new reason, new argumentation, uh, Yeah, just basically into the possibility that we're wrong. And what I try to argue is that there's a way of shifting these conversations away from thoughts about justification And toward thoughts about what you can affirm. So, when we put these things in the language of justification, when we worry about whether our values or commitments can be justified, there are always going to be um, arguments pro and con. There's always, you know, it's rare to have, maybe it's even impossible to have conclusive, rational argumentation in favor of some particular commitment or value. One thing that I think we can strive for instead of justification in that sense, is a kind of affirmation. We can ask ourselves not whether we have sort of a watertight argument in favor of the commitment or value, but whether we can sort of recommit to it in a certain way, whether we can affirm our commitment to it in light of all these ambiguities and so forth so we can be open to reconsidering evidence to considering arguments and so forth but so long as we continue to bear this affirmative relation to the value or the commitment that can help to preserve it so we could ask ourselves not is this sufficiently justified but is this affirmable that's one thought. and then um
0: Oh, can I? Can I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking about this uh, very old historical um, piece, but it really illustrates it. I think so. I'm going to throw it out and see if you agree. Um, so, uh, Galileo, we all know Galileo, the great scientist, was also deeply religious. And when when Galileo found that some of the things that that Copernicus had seen and that he saw in the sky using the latest scientific instruments of their time. Um, I think that they use this strategy, meaning Galileo said, I believe in God, but there are things that are not in the Bible. <laughs> um, and we can see them in, we can see some of these things in the sky. And, and I, there's even this great letter, which I, uh, I'm not going to quote off the top of my head, but there's this wonderful place where Galileo is writing a letter and he says... Yes, the Bible is wonderful. The Bible gives us lots of things. The Bible gives us lots of truths, but it doesn't cover everything. And but we can look at the world that was made and we can see some of those truths with our own eyes. And sometimes those things don't look like they're exactly the same, but that doesn't mean that the religion is wrong. It means that we find the things that we can affirm. So I, that, that example really just came to me as you were talking about it, because that's an example of someone who's saying, I'm learning new things. I'm not throwing out the old or treating it as something that's, um, under attack. I'm saying, how does this deepen my understanding? How does it let me affirm what I know and take in the new information at the same time? So,
1: yeah, that's a great example because it does seem to involve, um, this stance of affirmation where he's asking himself not you know do i have the objection proof demonstration of, of this commitment but rather can i affirm the commitment um, and it also it moves nicely into this um this other stance that i i mean it seems to to blend both of them because you mentioned that it involves kind of deepening and that's that's sort of the other thing that i think can be involved in some of these stances where um i describe this thing i called the The deepening move where, I mean, I think a familiar process is that sometimes when you're committed to something, when you believe something and you encounter objections to it or potential problems with it, sometimes you can take those just to be indications that you have an inadequate understanding of the thing to which you're committed or the thing that you believe rather than that you're wrong or that this thing should be abandoned. So with Galileo, um, one thing that might be happening with them, as you're suggesting, is that he sees that you know, given his present understanding of how the universe works and what his religious commitments are, he doesn't see a way of um, rendering them like straightforwardly compatible. He doesn't have like, a, a proof that they are. But he sees that not as a reason to abandon those commitments, but to strive for a, a deeper understanding of them. And he suspects that some deeper understanding is available that would show why they're compatible, why they don't conflict with one another. So, I mean, I think that's often a a really praiseworthy thing. I mean, imagine you just like give up your beliefs as soon as you encounter an objection to them. That's not a good way to make progress. I mean, you can see that in even straightforward scientific examples. I mean, often when a scientist proposes a new theory, uh, there are tons of objections. It's rare to have conclusive or even sufficient uh, justification for continuing to maintain the theory right away, but you can persevere. You can um, sort of think that okay as we understand this stuff now we don't see how to answer these problems but um were we to press on were we to keep trying to deepen our understanding uh, perhaps one day we will have that so that the objections to the theory or to the commitment are taken as objections that um don't refute the thing but just problematize your present understanding of it so that you need to, to deepen that understanding so that's what i call the deepening move
0: I think that's such a powerful uh, construct because it allows you to take in a challenge of for anything. I mean, not just religious or philosophical, but even in your daily life, you can take in a challenge and consider it a way to, to think more fully about what you're saying. And if, it, if you can somehow get away from the fear and somehow get away from the anxiety that you might have been wrong, um, but rather just take it at face value. Okay, there's a challenge. What does that mean? Um, what does this bring to me? Um, I think it provides a, a huge opportunity in, in any sphere to understand what we mean and why we believe things. And um, I, I guess I can understand why it's difficult. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how difficult this this really is um, when you try to apply this affirmation deepening. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how you think it might be a counter to this kind of negative fanaticism.
1: Yeah, good. Well, I mean, as you're suggesting, I think it requires a certain kind of strength or self-assurance to to do this, right? So one thing that I was claiming about the fanatic is that the fanatic displays a kind of fragility, a kind of weakness in his self-conception um, and in his value so that he's very threatened, for example, by a mere disagreement. He craves a kind of certainty, a kind of insulation from, from those sort of disagreements and critiques. And you know, there's, there's risk involved in these processes that I was describing as affirmation of deepening. I mean, you could be wrong, right? Uh, you could remain committed to something. And it could turn out that that commitment and all the actions, even like the whole life that it informs is a mistake. Um, So it's always safer to immediately adjust these things in light of criticism. Um, There's a risk involved in sticking with them. And I think that's what makes them so difficult. They require a certain kind of confidence, a certain kind of assurance, or at least a willingness to undertake risks, sometimes with large stretches of your life, you know, depending on how profound these commitments that we're talking about are, um, that's what makes it so hard, but I also think that if we don't do that, um, we risk either giving up our commitments entirely, you know, just having these ones that are, are fickle and, you know, change all the time, or we try to preserve them from uncertainty in this fanatical way where we have this hostile negative stance toward any disagreement, I think affirmation and deepening are responses to the complexity and ambivalence of the world. Um, But that it can be hard to deal with the complexity and ambivalence of the world and that, unfortunately, one reaction that a lot of people have to it is the the fearful fanatical reaction or the withdrawn, dissipated reaction that consistently up these strong commitments.
0: Yeah, it is really. um, I think it's a wonderful suggestion. I would love to see people take it up. I'd love to see our audience um, respond to it and and see what they think. I found it really uh, sort of inspiring in a way. Um, And and even not necessarily just in these big, dramatic ways. But, you know, I think of uh, my poor husband, who probably would be Absolutely mortified to so know I'm talking about him on a podcast, but he is very healthy. He's he gets he gets really into all the latest health cry, uh, crazes. You know, uh, we have closets full of strange salts that are supposed to help us. Um, but you know, he's he he's devoted to each of these things individually. But as he learns of a new one, he's he's able to incorporate it and sort of shift. So his commitment is to the health, not to each specific manifestation of that health. And I think as, you know, I think that's a really great example of using that of, yes, I'm maintaining this commitment to what really matters, health, uh, which is very positive. Um, and then I'm able to use new information to both reaffirm my commitment to health, uh, which I'm less good at than he is, but, you know, we do try. And then also a deepening, which is to say, well, what am I able to to learn from this? How can I use this to, um, to expand my understanding and, and, and have it be flexible rather than inflexible? Um, in one of the summaries of your book that I read, it was referred to as a quest. Um, I don't know if that was one that you wrote or one that someone else wrote, but I love the idea of this as a quest. It's something that gives it a certain amount of, um, of adventure and also of an idea that, that it is an adventure for good. I don't know if, if you want to r- talk about that at all.
1: Oh, I think that's I think that's a very useful description. That's questing language because a quest. I mean, it often involves this idea of devoting yourself um, to something to you know the object of your quest. But it's also exploratory, right? It's it, a quest is often not thought of as some rigid sort of single-minded one track path to a goal. It's more you know, unanticipated things will arise and beauties will arise. So it'll lead to potentially shift your understanding of the object of your quest uh, but nonetheless it remains profoundly important and um, can inform large stretches of your life and i also like the example of the uh, the health versus the particular types of exercise so i think that's another interesting feature that some of these commitments are uh, sort of nested within broader commitments so um it's not that your husband is devoted to like the one particular form of exercise, he's devoted to something broader health, but that's expressed in this flexible way through the uh, you know the various types of exercise that you can engage in. So I think that's also a very useful and healthy stance, right? Not being rigidly tied to one particular understanding of what the object of your devotion requires, but instead rethinking it in light of new information of new experiences so forth
0: so i um i think we're gonna have to start to bring this to a close i'd love if you could um if there's one main idea about this book that you want our listeners to walk away with what would that
1: be i think the main idea of this book is that devotion understood in the way that i've been describing it as this form of commitment that's exempted or insulated from certain kinds of reflection and so forth. Devotion is this profoundly important aspect of human life, something that we have a real longing for, but also something that can go horribly wrong. So it's both tremendously important and tremendously risky. And that's why I think it's so crucial to sort of get it right. Understand Wonderful.
0: And, um. We are always here at the New Books Network looking for new books to read. So we would love to know what you suggest for our audience to pick up next.
1: Yeah. Well, if you're interested, especially in the negative aspects of this uh, stance that I was calling devotion, if you're interested in fanaticism, in the sorts of political issues that we've been discussing, one book that I found Sort of inspirational when I was uh, researching this book is an older book. Um, it's called *The True Believer* by Eric Hoffer, and he gives an analysis of what you might think of as fanaticism. He calls it being a true believer, but he's very interested in the way in which certain kinds of political thinking can be rooted in um, in the kinds of pathologies that that I've been discussing. So Eric Hoffer's *The True Believer* is right? a Great book that used to be very popular um, back in the uh, when it was 50s, I think, but um, isn't read as much today, but I think is still full of valuable insights.
0: Fantastic. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and uh, I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Paul Katifanas, it has been such a pleasure discussing your book, Philosophy of Devotion The Longing for Invulnerable Ideals. Thank you for joining us on the new Books Now.
1: Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.